You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week and not one like mine, which involved an entire pipe coming out of the wall of my apartment and ultimately making a catastrophic mess in the bathroom. The pipe just got fixed this morning, but there's still a giant hole in my wall that I'm going to pretend doesn't exist. No movies this week as work was a little, well, a lot busy, and this week is a big episode anyway, so let's just get right into it. From humble beginnings to the very pinnacle of superstardom, our man this week experienced it all. The silhouette of his tramp character would become synonymous with the word film from nearly the moment he stepped on screen. This week, at long last, a brief look at the life and work of Charlie Chaplin. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Charles Spencer Chaplin Jr. was born on April 16, 1889, the son of two music hall performers. While he never had a formal birth certificate to confirm, it is believed he was born in Walworth, South London, and lived near a pickle factory. When Charlie was about two, his father deserted the family, running off with a chorus girl. Chaplin's mother Hannah would suffer with mental illness throughout her life and would be in and out of mental facilities starting in 1898, with Charlie taking care of her during her brief remissions as he got older. When there would be no one to look after young Charlie and his older brother or things got financially dire for Hannah, he was sent to a workhouse in Lennington called Lambeth. The first time this happened, Charlie was only seven years old. When Hannah suffered a breakdown of psychosis due likely to contracting syphilis and also being malnourished, Charlie and his older half-brother were sent to live with Charles Sr., but Sr. died two years later at the age of 38 from cirrhosis of the liver due to extreme alcoholism. Between bouts of caretaking for his mother and living in a workhouse, Charlie would find ways to perform on the stage. Described as endearingly funny by those who knew him back then, Charlie first took to the stage at age 5 to cover for his mother, and by 9 he had developed a love for it. At age 10, thanks to his father's connections, Charlie even toured the country as a member of a clog dancing group. For years after that, he'd find bit roles on stage and touring in vaudeville acts until Fred Carno took an interest when Charlie was 18. But Charlie would never forget the streets he grew up on and the extreme, harsh poverty he faced. These elements of his early life would influence nearly all of his films. 
By 18, Charlie had become a seasoned vet on the stage, the one who was having trouble finding work. But it just so happened that Sidney, Charlie's older brother, had joined a comedy troupe owned by Fred Carno in 1906, and Sidney managed to secure his kid brother a guest gig. This guest gig quickly became a contract after the, quote, pale, puny, sullen-looking youngster Carno had been apprehensive to hire, as the comedy his shows featured were highly physical, well, that kid brought down the London Coliseum. While the most extreme of extroverts on stage, the second Charlie stepped off it, his troopmates didn't really know what to do with the quiet, moody recluse with a hunger for knowledge that was Charlie himself. By 1910, Charlie was being offered lead roles in the troupe, and Carno invited him to be a part of his American troupe across the pond. The tour lasted 21 months, with the troupe returning to England in June 1912, which had bummed Charlie out. A fortune teller in California had told him he was about to enter a new field and make a ton of money, and that hadn't happened yet. Shortly after returning to England, it was announced that they'd be taking the 12-day sea voyage back to the United States in October, and Charlie planned to make the most of it. Six months into this second tour, Charlie was invited to join the roster of the New York Motion Picture Company in the Keystone Department to replace a departing comedian. Producer Max Sennett had vaguely remembered Charlie as a comedian he'd seen at a music hall performance years prior and sent a telegram asking them to find a Chambers or Champion or Chaprin that had worked for Carno. And they found him, and as luck would have it, Charlie was on tour and was in Pennsylvania. While Charlie wasn't the biggest fan of the work the Keystone Company was doing, it was mainly pies to the face and elaborate car chases, or he wasn't really a big fan of film in general as he thought it was just a passing fad, the chance of getting to be a part of the merging art form of film was too intriguing for the vaudevillian to pass up, and the fact that they were going to pay him three times what he was making for Carno didn't hurt either. So Charlie signed a $150 week contract in September of 1913 and reported for duty in Los Angeles in early January. Max Sennett, the head of Keystone, was, based on some sources, less than enthused upon seeing just how baby-faced the 24-year-old chaplain was. Charlie had often used makeup on stage to age himself. Initially believing him too young to be useful, Charlie just kind of hung out for his first few weeks, biding his time trying to figure out how filmmaking worked, and he ultimately made his first one real short, Making a Living, which released on February 2nd, 1914. Yep, films came out that fast back then. It's like YouTube speeds, but on film. Charlie didn't like the film, but he did get some positive reviews, mostly bad ones, but he got some good ones. It would be Charlie's second film that would change everything, mostly because it featured his most iconic character. When figuring out the costume that would make up his iconic tramp, Charlie would later recall in an interview, quote, I wanted everything to be a contradiction. The pants baggy, the coat tight, the hat small, and the shoes large. I added a small mustache, which, I reasoned, would add age without hiding my expression. I had no idea of the character, but the moment I was dressed, the clothes and the makeup made me feel the person he was. I began to know him, and by the time I walked on stage, he was fully born. He would also claim that this happened spontaneously, something that would be brought into question later. According to the real Charlie Chaplin doc on Showtime, the shoes had belonged to his predecessor, the pants had been fatty arbuckles, and the hat had belonged to someone's father. While the world's introduction to Charlie's Tramp would be in 1914's Kid Auto Day at Venice, it was actually Mabel's Strange Predicament starring Mabel Normand that was actually the first film Charlie portrayed the Tramp. It released two days later. 
Charlie's introduction as the tramp was well-received by audiences and critics alike, so Charlie made the tramp his on-screen persona. By his 11th film for Keystone, Charlie wished to break out and do his own thing. He was also nearly fired for fighting with Mabel Normand, but Senate kept him on because he'd started getting requests from theater owners for more tramp films. People of all ages, from all socioeconomic backgrounds, from all over the world, had seemingly fallen in love with the funny little man in the mustache who could turn any situation into a comedy. In a world so rigidly defined by class, when the tramp stuck it to the man, like he did so many times, the crowds went wild. The tramp was becoming a universal figure. Without a native land or tongue, he was just simply the tramp. Well, in most places, my favorite name for him, as tramp is not a universal word, was what they called him in Japan. They called him Professor Alcohol. (laughs) Because most of the early tramp stuff, he was always like drunk or in some state of inebriation. That, That did phase out a little bit later on, but we'll get to that. Caught in the Rain, Charlie's directorial debut, did so well when it released in May 1914 that it secured Charlie directorial work for Keystone, and soon he was making one film per week. Charlie would reflect on it as the most exciting time of his career. He also introduced a newer, slower kind of comedy to the zany Keystone brand. Charlie appeared in his first feature-length film, Tilly's Punctured Romance, in November of 1914. By this point, Charlie had made 35 films for Max Sennett and had become increasingly popular with each one. When Charlie's contract was facing renewal at the end of his first year, he asked for $1,000 per week, an amount Sennett refused to pay. But Chicago-based Essany would. In fact, they were willing to pay him $1,250 plus a $10,000 bonus. This made Charlie the highest-paid performer in the world, in addition to arguably being the most famous man alive by this point. According to Charlie, however, the adoration was not for him specifically, but rather for, quote, the little man. In fact, according to those who knew him, Charlie struggled with the balance of who he was and what his public perception was. As a result, in public, he always seemed to be performing, especially if there was a camera on him. His second wife would later claim this stemmed from a deep insecurity of him believing he could never truly be loved. Also, his fear of falling into poverty never faded away. During his time at Essany, which lasted only a year, Charlie assumed more and more control over his films, and his star continued to rise astronomically. More control meant that Charlie began taking longer in-between projects, a habit that would only increase in time. Initially, the tramp had started off more crude, a drunk, that audiences were beginning to find a bit too crass. So Charlie softened the character at the edges, and by April 1915's The Tramp, we see more of the character as he's remembered today, a little bit more cheeky, a little bit more mischievous, and even the critics took notice and responded very positively to this change. 1915 would be the year that Charlie Chaplin became an international phenomenon. In a move far ahead of his time, Tramp merchandise was sold, his on-screen persona inspired songs and spawned appearances in comic books. I saw a picture of a, like, Macy's Day Parade-style flow. I don't know if it was Macy's Day Parade, but it looked like that. It was, like, that kind of level of intricacy. But, like, the like his face was just internationally recognized, He became basically the first international star of cinema. 
And Essany was just too small to handle that kind of talent and attention. So when that contract ended in December 1915, Charlie received a litany of offers from the biggest studios of the day, but decided to go with Mutual, who willingly paid the asked upon $150,000 signing bonus, but also offered him the most money at $10,000 per week. Just two years after arriving in Hollywood, the 26-year-old was one of the highest paid individuals in the entire world. Out of this, Charlie also got his own studio, which opened in March 1916. There, the actor and company churned out increasingly intricate films like The Fireman and The Pawn Shop. By the following year, Charlie began demanding more time in between his films. In 1916, Charlie made 12 films for Mutual, and in 1917, it was only four, which included The Immigrant. Charlie cites in his biography that the work he made at this time to be among his best, and that it marked the happiest era of his career, even though he felt it began to become too formulaic. In 1917, professional chaplains slash tramp impersonators were so prevalent that Charlie took legal action, including against one individual that called himself Charles Applin. Applin claimed that his tramp was not based on Charlie's, but rather on Billy West's imitation of Chaplin's tramp, so he should be the one getting sued, not Applin. This then opened up questions as to where Charlie came up with the idea for the tramp in the first place. This was especially brought into question after looking at two of Charlie's former Carnot colleagues, Fred Kitchen and Billy Ritchie, whom would claim that Charlie stole elements of the tramp from them. In fact, Ritchie would make a career producing knockoff Chaplin films. But the tramp character and that type of comedy had been around since Charlie had been in diapers. And of course, the tramp comedy was based on actual homeless people of that era. Nothing, even a character from the earliest days of film, is wholly original. It was also reported at this time that 9 out of 10 men who attended costume parties did so dress as the tramp. Very original. Mutual's contract with Charlie ended amicably at the end of 1917, with the filmmaker wanting to seek out further independence and began looking for a distributor who would allow him that. This would ultimately land Charlie at First National in June 1917 with a million-dollar eight-picture deal. Charlie took the money and built himself a state-of-the-art studio on Sunset Boulevard, which is now home to Jim Henson Productions. When completed in January of 1918, Charlie now had the most artistic freedom he'd had to date. Charlie's first film for First National was A Dog's Life and was met with a claim in the box office to match. His next, Shoulder Arms, would do so as well, despite warnings that the subject matter of the film, it was a World War I comedy made during the war, was a little bit maybe too controversial. It still did very well and would set a precedent for later in his career. After these two films did very, very well, Charlie asked for more money for his third film, which First National denied. So, with Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith, he founded United Artists in January 1919. For more on that story, check out my November 2022 episode about how that went. So, we talked a little bit about, you know, Charlie's top, top of the pops right now. Um... Charlie had problematic tastes in women, and by women I mean underage girls, even by 1918 standards. Not great. In September 1918, he married 16-year-old Mildred Harris, age of consent in California was 18 at the time, so super off the books, who had allegedly become pregnant with his child. The ceremony was done on the down low for obvious reasons, because they didn't want to deal with controversy. Shortly after the ceremony, Charlie found out that the pregnancy had been a ruse to get her to marry him. The two would have one child, whom would die three days after he was born, and divorced in April 1920. 
So with Charlie seemingly now in charge of his own fate and newly married, just one thing was holding him back. Well, six things. Those pesky six first national films he still had to make per his contract. In 1921, Charlie made The Kid, which his off-sighted was inspired due to the loss of his child two years prior. Co-starring Jackie Coogan as the titular kid, the film is now considered one of the best silent films of all time. In it, Charlie's tramp character finds an abandoned baby and takes him in. Five years later, he has to move heaven and earth to ensure the boy isn't taken from him. The film, less than an hour in length, on HBO Max anyway, when it was released, it ran about 68 minutes, took Charlie nine months to complete. By this point, Charlie was pretty much running his own show, producing, directing, writing, and even scoring his films. The actors were instructed to copy everything Chaplin told them to do, basically miming him and essentially becoming extensions of him in the process. Some that knew him claimed that if Chaplin could have done every single job on a film set, he would have done so. In 1921, Charlie returned to London for the first time since leaving nearly nine years prior. He found his mother in a nursing home and took her back with him to the States where he lived with his older and younger half-brothers. By this time, Hannah was suffering from extreme dementia and her sons ensured she received round-the-clock care. She died seven years later with Charlie at her side. Charlie completed work for First National with February 1923's Payday, and at last, he was free. Three of arguably Charlie's best films came out in the next 13 years. The Gold Rush, City Lights, and Modern Times. Chaplin believed The Gold Rush was his best film he ever made. It sees the tramp dealing with adversity and the prospect of love in Klondike, Alaska. This movie features the famous scene of the tramp making the dinner rolls dance on the forks and also of him eating his own shoe. During the 15-month production of The Gold Rush, Charlie married for the second time. Charlie was 35... And his wife, Lita Gray, was 16 and pregnant. For real this time. Charlie had known the girl for several years, and she had even appeared in two of his films, including The Kid, when she was just 12. It's so... Charlie had to recast her role in The Gold Rush when she became pregnant, because the amount of time it took Charlie to make a film meant that, you know... It wasn't going to hold up between scenes if she was pregnant, not pregnant, pregnant, not pregnant. So he had to recast her. This, I mean, I hesitate to call it a relationship. How about inappropriate ass mess was considered statutory rape in California. But, you know, he was white, rich and famous. So a little bit of leeway and he wasn't controversial at, at this juncture. So Charlie managed to just get them like married in Mexico in November 1924 on the sly. And unsurprisingly... This marriage was incredibly unhappy, and Charlie spent hours at work at the studio to avoid his teen bride. Their children, Charles Spencer Chaplin III, was born in May 1925, and Sidney Earl Chaplin followed in March 1926. In November 1926, Gray took the children and left Charlie. A horrible divorce followed, with Gray accusing Chaplin of infidelity, abuse, and of having, quote, perverted sexual desires. The accusations reportedly caused Charlie to basically almost have a nervous breakdown as the story spread across the nation and bans of his films were called for. Copies of the divorce complaint were sold on the street for 25 cents. This is how crazy this whole thing got. Within that claim were accusations of Charlie's cruelty, accusations of him bugging her room, pulling a gun on her, and his attempts to allegedly pressure her into getting an abortion. He denied them all, calling her lovely things like a gold digger and a little whore. The press did no help and called Gray Chaplin's child bride and his schoolgirl wife. 
a group of European intellectuals also called her lovely names. All of this was an attempt to just discredit her and just make her look like a greedy, greedy woman who was only 18, 19 years old, mind you, so barely a woman. And they wanted just the press to get on the side of like, what would this horrible woman do to this poor man who was nearly 40 years old? He was a full ass adult. Basically, just to make her go away, Charlie's lawyers paid her out in the amount of $600,000, the largest sum awarded in American court up to that point. After this, Lita struggled with depression and alcoholism for years, eventually trying to set the record straight with a tell-all book she'd released decades later. Despite this attempt, every interview she did ignored her alleged struggles, with interviewers instead wishing to focus on the genius of her former husband. Charlie's career recovered from all of this, but reportedly he did not. In Charlie's own autobiography, he devotes three sentences of his marriage to Lita, though he never mentions her by name. Biographies on Charlie would also characterize Lita as a gold-digging seductress, completely ignoring the fact that she was a child when the relationship began. By the time City Lights was released in 1931, sound had obviously become a thing, and as it grew in popularity, all the major studios canceled their silent pictures or transferred them into sound ones, making the thing that had made the tramp such a strong character, his silence, become the character's weakness practically overnight. Charlie didn't like the idea of sound, believing it stunted the art of film. And in the early days, it honestly kind of did because there was a lot of shit to figure out and they had to stand like directly under the microphones. Otherwise, it wouldn't sound good. So it was a lot of standing still. So I get that. He's obviously a very, you know, frenetic comedian. A lot of his stuff is very physical because it was silent. Sound's not going to be a great, great time for him. He was also afraid that making the tramp talk would limit his reach internationally, which was, you know, what happened for a lot of for a lot of silent film people. Charlie decided to keep City Lights silent, a decision he fretted over for the entirety of the film's production, which went well over 500 days, which is just absolutely unheard of in the modern sense. But nothing drove him crazier than the scene where his blind love interest mistakes the tramp for a millionaire. Charlie never had a script in these days, so he was just kind of flying by the seat of his pants. So they were just on the street corner like he's like, OK, we'll try this. How does she realize that he's rich without, you know, her being able to see or without him being able to like vocalize it? Or like, where does the where does the um, comedy of errors spawn from? And he at one point freaked out and fired the actress because he's like, oh, the actress is the problem. And, and then they just freaked out and freaked out and freaked out. And then finally, just one day, inspiration struck and he realized, oh, if she hears the the, the sound of a car door slam, even though in the film it's silent, but you see it, she'll think that the car belongs to the tramp. And then that's where the whole thing, the whole misunderstanding would stem from. By the time he got all that figured out and the film got finished and released in December of 1930, public opinion of silent films was at an all time low. They wanted the new and exciting sound pictures. Despite a rough first showing of City Lights, Charlie proved that there was, for at least a while longer, a place in the world for the silent film, as long as he was in it anyway. 50,000 people showed up to the premiere of City Lights just to get a glimpse at Charlie Chaplin. For the remainder of his life, Charlie would consider City Lights his favorite of his films. Unsure where to take his career next, as he believed he couldn't strike lightning in a barrel twice as sound continued to grow in popularity, Charlie left for a vacation that ended up being 16 months long, during which time he met Gandhi and discussed the vices of modern technology and was nearly assassinated by Japanese ultranationalists in May 1932 in an attempt to rile up the U.S. into getting into a war. I don't think they realize that Charlie was not American. American figure, yes. American, no. 
Returning to Los Angeles, the actor soon married 21-year-old Paulette Godard. He was 43. In a ceremony so secret, the press would speculate on the nature of the relationship for months. Still not wanting to commit to making a film, which irritated Mary Pickford to no end because United Artists only had one of the United Artists actually making films for United Artists. And instead, Charlie devoted his time to writing about his journey around the world. Eventually, inspiration would strike in the form of the state of labor in America. And of course, by now, the world was deep into the Great Depression. Charlie feared that capitalism and machines would ultimately increase unemployment and make the whole situation worse. From this and his conversations with Gandhi came the idea for the film Modern Times. Like City Lights, the film would be primarily silent. Charlie had considered making the tramp speak at last, but changed his mind during rehearsals. The tramp would only speak in the form of gibberish during a song, giving the tramp a voice for arguably the only time on film, but there is a gray area, but we'll get to that in a little bit. While hardly his first foray into making a comment on the political or social state of the world, it had been Charlie's first in a while, which led to considerable press that Charlie tried in vain to avoid and downplay. The film earned less at the box office than his previous features had, but still did quite well overseas, though some viewers still disliked The Tramp being in a movie that politicized an issue. While Modern Times had done well internationally, the film had been banned in one notable country, as its fascist leader did not like the comparisons he He'd been receiving between himself and the little tramp. His party, the Nazis, would label the tramp as a Jew and use Charlie's likeness in their propaganda. By 1938, Charlie and Godard had drifted apart as both were more focused on their careers, although Godard was his leading lady in Charlie's next feature, The Great Dictator. She eventually divorced Charlie in Mexico in 1942, citing incompatibility and separation for more than a year. The 1940s turned out to be not a lot kinder to Charlie. As he'd gotten older, his political beliefs became a bigger part of his life, and he didn't shy away from voicing them in his work. This alienated a huge part of his fan base, leading to a decline in his popularity. Charlie had also become concerned with the rising far-right military nationalism, which was on the rise overseas, which of course in part would lead to World War II. As alluded to earlier, Charlie was compared often to Adolf Hitler, like a lot, and the two do share a small resemblance, not just because of the mustache, and Charlie couldn't get that fact out of his head. And the similarities went beyond just a surface level too. They'd been born the same year, just four days apart. Both were born into poverty. Both had strong attachments to their mothers with a dislike for their fathers. Both were highly ambitious, if internally troubled. And of course, both, one for comedy and the other for madness and hate, were phenomenal performers that attracted the masses at fever pitch mobbish levels. Charlie once said that he could have easily become the madman of the two, with Hitler becoming the comedian. The line betwixt the two was that thin, in Charlie's opinion. With all of this turmoil bubbling to the surface, came the inspiration for his next film. 1940's The Great Dictator began production in September 1939, six days after World War II had started with Britain declaring war on Germany. Making a political satire of Hitler at this time was no easy feat, but Charlie had the financial freedom to do so. Otherwise, I doubt this film would have ever been made. A studio would not have touched this. Hitler wasn't seen as he is now, you know, globally by people with education and brains. Charlie had actually been very ahead of the curve on that one. At least in the States, they were, they were until Pearl Harbor, they were kind of like, not our business. 
In the film, the character of the tramp was replaced with a Jewish barber who did speak, um, which was a reference to the Nazis' belief that Chaplin was Jewish. He was not. Not that that matters, but, you know, semantics. And in a dual performance, Charlie also played the dictator Adenoid Hinkle, which was a parody of Hitler. For both roles, Charlie spoke, believing that it was the only way to convey political messages. When released in October of 1940, the film was a massive success, so the ending was a little bit dicey for a lot of people. A lot of people didn't like didn't like it. What was the ending? You you didn't ask. Um, <laughs> it was a nearly five minute monologue performed by technically the tramp, but also kind of not the tramp because it was the barber. So it's kind of a gray area, but it was also kind of Chaplin because he's like just staring right into the camera, just very sincerely pleading with the audience against war and fascism and just basically saying that we all have a right to to live a, a happy, successful life. Whether or not this is the tramp speaking for the first time or not, Charlie never performed as the tramp in any form in a motion picture again. Franklin D. Roosevelt liked The Great Dictator so much, he invited Charlie to read the speech over the radio during his 1941 inauguration. Charlie would recite the speech many more times as the war raged on overseas. And once the lid was popped, Charlie couldn't stop talking about his political beliefs, which skewed a bit too much into communistic territory for a couple of muckety-mucks in power. Aside from his public life becoming more and more controversial, the private one was about to blow up as well. The FBI had started a file on Charlie, wanting to basically out him as a communist, despite his rampant denials of being one. As they gathered circumstantial evidence against him, they'd feed it to gossip columnist Hedda Hopper, whom was only too eager to publish what they gave her. She hated communists and was all too eager to write negative things about Charlie based on what the FBI was telling her. The FBI would then take those articles and quote them in their file on Charlie as proof that he was a communist, even though the information was what they had just given her, essentially creating an Ouroboros of misinformation. Hopper, with her 32 million strong readers, could make or break careers with just a few strikes of her typewriter, and Charlie was her new target. She even found somebody to further her cause in the form of Joan Barry. Aspiring actress Joan Barry had had a casual relationship with Charlie between June 1941 and the fall of 1942. Barry, who'd become obsessed with Charlie, had been arrested twice after they'd separated for trying to get to him. A year later, she came back into his life, announcing that she was pregnant with Charlie's child. Charlie denied this as they'd long since been broken up, but Barry filed a paternity suit at the encouragement of Hopper and, by extension, the FBI. As the Red Scare began ramping up again, ultimately leading to the McCarthy witch hunts of the late 1940s and 50s, Charlie was accused of being a communist once more. His political activity had heightened during World War II, as I mentioned, and he and during this time he was campaigning for the opening of the Second Front to help the Soviet Union because they were against the Nazis and supported various Soviet-American friendship groups. He was also friendly with several suspected communists and attended functions given by Soviet diplomats in Los Angeles. In the political climate of 1940s America, despite the fact that they would eventually become our tenuous allies, this was the equivalency of Charlie basically hanging the Soviet flag over his house and blasting their national anthem every hour on the hour. Charlie later claimed not to be a communist, but rather a peacemonger. 
So if you listen to the podcast weekly, and as always, thank you, you may remember from last June the lengths the U.S. government was willing to take in order to discredit and destroy anybody in Hollywood whose opinions were deemed too communistic. J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI at this time, basically made it his mission to destroy Chaplin. He was not super stoked on Charlie's increasingly vocal political beliefs as people would listen to him. So when Barry filed the lawsuit, Hoover used the opportunity to generate further negative publicity about the actor. As part of their smear campaign, the FBI named Charlie in four indictments related to the Barry case, the worst of which was an alleged violation of the Mann Act, which prohibits the transportation of women across state boundaries for sexual purposes. Charlie was eventually acquitted of all the government's charges by April 1944, during which time Charlie was accused of all manner of things, including making the actress get two illegal abortions. There is no proof of this being true that I could find, but it was the 1940s in Hollywood. God only knows. Newsweek called the series of trials, quote, the biggest public relations scandal since the Fatty Arbuckle murder trial. And Hopper made sure a week didn't go by without the case playing out in the press. In a world before modern DNA testing, Charlie was found to be the father of Barry's child, despite the fact that little Carol Ann was born 11 to 13 months after they'd stopped seeing each other. Not rocket science to figure out that she was not his biological child. Also, early blood evidence pretty much proved he couldn't have been the child's father, but this evidence was declared not admissible in court by the judge because, frankly, Charlie had been judged in the court of public opinion. It was absolute chaos. So he was deemed the father of this child and was ordered to pay child support until Carol Ann was 21. Joan Barry was committed to a psychiatric hospital a few years later, where all trace of her ends. While all of this was going on, and it probably didn't help his case, honestly, even though, you know, love, whatever, 54-year-old Charlie thought it would be a good idea, two weeks after the paternity suit was filed, to announce that he'd married 18-year-old Una O'Neill, an aspiring actress and the daughter of American playwright Eugene O'Neill. She had been Charlie's most recent protege, a relationship that started when she was 17. They had known each other for only seven months and had married just after she turned 18. In his autobiography, Traflin described meeting O'Neill as, quote, the happiest event of my life and claimed to have found, quote, perfect love. The couple remained married until Charlie's death, and they had eight children together over 18 years, including actress Geraldine Chaplin. Chaplin's next film wouldn't begin shooting until 1946, though he had started working on it in 1942. The film was 1947's Monsieur Verdot, a black comedy about a French bank clerk played by Charlie who loses his job and begins marrying and murdering wealthy widows to support his family. Again, Charlie vocalized his political views, namely critiques on capitalism and arguing that the world encourages mass killing through wars and weapons of mass destruction. Because of this, the film was met with controversy when it released and obviously he was still in a lot of hot water for the whole other stuff that happened. And Charlie was booed at the premiere, and there were calls for a boycott of the film altogether. Monsieur Verdot became the first Chaplin release that failed both critically and commercially in the United States, though it did better overseas. One critic complained during promotion of the film that she didn't like his films anymore since he'd stopped being funny. Also, the FBI wasn't done with him and wanted him out of the country and launched another official investigation in early 1947. Charlie received a subpoena to appear before HUAC, but was not called to testify. As his activities were widely reported in the press and Cold War fears grew, questions were raised over his failure to take American citizenship. 
He lived there more than half of his life and had made his fortune there after all. If Charlie had had decided to become an American citizen, what happened next would have very likely played out quite differently. Charlie's last Hollywood film was 1952's Limelight, a film about an aging music hall performer and a young ballerina. The film was heavily autobiographical, alluding not only to Charlie's childhood and his parents, but also to his fall from grace in Hollywood. The cast included various members of his family, including his five oldest children and his younger half-brother. Buster Keaton also has a cameo in this film. Charlie decided to hold the world premiere of Limelight in London, as that was where the film was set. As he left Los Angeles, however, he claimed later to have a premonition that he would not be returning. In New York, he boarded the RMS Queen Elizabeth with his family on September 18, 1952. The very next day, U.S. Attorney General James P. McGannery revoked Chaplin's re-entry permit and stated that Charlie would have to give an interview concerning his political views and morals if he wanted to be allowed back in the United States. McGannery told the press that he had, quote, a pretty good case against Chaplin, but when the files were declassified in the 1980s, this was proven to be untrue and actually cast the 1950s FBI as the villains, not Charlie Chaplin. As it was, if Charlie had given in to this power play, he would have more than likely been allowed re-entry into the United States. But when he received the news that his permit had been revoked, Charlie decided to cut his ties with the United States altogether. Una would be the one to return to the United States to close up their life there, and in January 1953, the Chaplin clan moved into their final home near Lake Geneva, Switzerland. Charlie put his Beverly Hills house and studio up for sale in March. In 1954, Una renounced her U.S. citizenship and became a British citizen. Charlie's final professional tie with the United States ended in 1955 when he sold the remainder of his stock in United Artists. In 1956, Charlie got to shooting on his next picture, A King in New York. He played an exiled king who seeks asylum in the United States. This film had a ton of nods to what had happened to Charlie over the previous decade or so. Charlie's character faces accusations of communism, his real son Michael plays a boy whose parents are targeted by the FBI, and the film also parodies HUAC and attacks consumerism, plastic surgery, and widescreen cinema, which had been invented to lure people back to the theaters. When A King in New York premiered in Paris, Charlie banned the American press from attending. The film was actually not viewed in the United States until 1973. Charlie made one final film 10 years after this, 1967's A Countess from Hong Kong, which was based on the life of a Russian aristocrat. Charlie appears only briefly in this film as an old steward. Neither a king in New York nor a countess from Hong Kong gave Charlie the comeback the comedian secretly craved. Charlie spent his remaining years obtaining the rights to his surviving films, re-editing and rescoring many of them in the process. A Dog's Life, Shoulder Arms, and The Pilgrim were the first to be re-released in 1959. While Charlie was away from the United States, the country began shifting its views and people began to be able to appreciate Charlie's later films for what they were. In 1964, he released a 500-page memoir which became a worldwide bestseller. It focused on his early years and personal life and was widely devoid of his film career. In the late 1960s, Charlie's health began to decline, starting with a series of strokes. In 1972, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences awarded the filmmaker with an honorary Oscar, recognizing his crucial contributions to filmmaking and having it also serve as an apology for the sins of the past. And Charlie planned to pick this up in person. 
Charlie's return to Hollywood attracted a massive amount of press coverage. And at the Academy Awards ceremony, he received a 12-minute standing ovation, the longest in the Academy's history. Visibly emotional, Charlie accepted his award for, quote, the incalculable effect he has had in making motion pictures, the art form of this century. Charlie continued to work on scripts up until his health prevented him from doing so. By 1975, he was nearly fully wheelchair-bound and was unable to kneel when given a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth II. By October 1977, Charlie had to have round-the-clock care, and in the early hours of Christmas Day 1977, Charlie Chaplin died in his sleep after suffering yet another stroke. He was 88 years old. The funeral held two days later was a small private Anglican ceremony per his wishes. On March 1st the following year, his coffin and corpse was stolen in an attempt to get ransom money out of his widow Una. The two individuals were caught two months later and Charlie's coffin and body were recovered. He was reinterred, this time in a concrete vault. Una Chaplin, the person Charlie claimed to be the only person who ever really knew him, never spoke about her husband publicly. While she kept diaries about their lives together, nothing was ever made public, and she destroyed much of what she'd written in her final years. She passed away in 1991 and is laid to rest next to her husband. Charlie Chaplin was a genius, one that made his audiences laugh and cry in equal measure. Whether as the tramp, as a filmmaker, a husband, a father, or political radical, Charlie Chaplin left his mark on not only filmmaking, but the world. And all it took was a hat, a cane, a little mustache, and a whole lot of dreams. As for who Charlie Chaplin really was, the world will never know. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterboxed account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find me, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help it out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got a buy me a coffee. I made coffee from home today because I've got a bunch of bougie stuff I bought in Seattle I need to get through. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. It's a five Sunday month, so no episode next week. But I will see you back in February. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.